Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of conversation and discourse now about how everything is terrible and always has been terrible. And there's some people in the history profession who are talking about how little has changed even since the Civil War. And I find that dangerous because if we don't think anything has ever changed, we get discouraged. And why bother? Why why bother to struggle? So I would like people not to give up. And I think part of not giving up on all the changes we still have to make is to believe that that this is possible and that things have improved, um, though that there's still an awful long way to go. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and joined by Emma Varvalukas, my co-host, the executive director of the Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast, our conversations with interesting folks, some of whom are members of the Progress Network, some of whom are not. And we're going to talk to someone today, an historian who has a memoir and an incredibly distinguished academic career, whose life has in part been animated by the awareness of change is the operative force in human society, the operative force in history, and that there is change for the better, as well as, of course, change for the worse. So today we're going to talk to Drew Faust. She's a historian and former president of Harvard University. She just so happened to be the first ever woman president of Harvard and the first to be a president there without receiving a degree from Harvard. So she's definitely a pioneer. She's the author of many books. I think the count is at six right now. And we're going to be talking to her about her latest book, which is a memoir called Necessary Trouble. It follows her as she's growing up in the 50s and 60s, where she's facing all the history that was occurring during that time, racial unrest, nuclear crises, precarious foreign alliances, Vietnam War. The memoir ends in 1968. So of course, a time of rapid change and fierce reaction. And now we're going to fast forward to 2023 and talk a little bit about some of the stuff that is still giving us aftershocks from that time period. Drew Gilpin Faust, such a pleasure to be talking to you today and such a kind of moving, interesting memoir. You know, so I met someone at a party a few weeks ago and they said memoir, which I'd never actually heard as a thing, but apparently that's a, a new thing to call a memoir. So I was thinking about this because I was recently in the Shenandoah Valley where you grew up. I, I suppose I was in Clark. I don't, you know, like most people, I'm kind of unaware of what county I'm in at any given point in time. And I was also you know, kind of struck viscerally once again, particularly driving past James Madison's mansion and driving, you know, near Charlottesville of the kind of continual conundrum of America's founding, that conundrum of all these people who were writing about the rights of man. And yes, of course, it was the rights of man and the need for freedom and the imperatives of creating a society where freedoms were preserved and there are the slave quarters you know right next to it in these places obviously true of mount vernon and you grew up in the midst of all that i guess i, I wonder to what degree any of that registered as a thing right i mean it's because i i'm so struck by it i think many people are so struck by it as this continually hard to square circle, difficult to answer question. But, you know, this was your lifeblood, literally, or your, you know, the, the, the soup in which you swam as a, as a youth. And I, I wonder, was that, you know, in any way part of the mix for you? 
So thanks for inviting me, Zach. It's great. It's great to be here. And I was just home in Virginia. See, I still call it home a couple of weeks ago. And once again, struck by many of the aspects of, of that society that are still visible and that remains like the houses you talk about and, and the history. I think I was made aware of these contradictions, these paradoxes in their 20th century setting when I was quite young, because I was imbued, as many young people are, with these notions of American democracy and freedom. And particularly in the 1950s, when I was growing up, the Cold War aspect of this made the uh, insistence on American freedoms very militant, in, in a sense, as, as the alternative, as the, the right way to do things in comparison to the communist bloc. And yet, even when I was a very young child, it became evident to me that this sense of justice did not incorporate all the people in my community. And, and that became evident in the aftermath of the Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision when Virginia was told to integrate its schools and the white political leadership said we would prefer to close them rather than integrate them. And as a nine-year-old, that just seemed to me astonishing. And I, I suddenly realized that my all-white school was all-white on purpose. And that seemed at odds with the very ideals that, that I had been taught even as a young child. So these were kind of the manifestation of those contradictions and paradoxes still persisting into the 20th century and having their roots in the, in the very conflict of slavery and freedom that was part of the, the founding generation. So, Drew, you're talking about, you know, the roots of this still persisting into now. We're obviously the Progress Network, so we believe a lot of progress has been made. And definitely what's striking about reading your book as someone that was born in the 90s is that the 50s and 60s as a landscape is just unrecognizable to me, you know, as, a, as an American landscape. So, you know, if you were to have a pie chart of like out of 100% success, where are we now as compared to then in terms of, you know, you put it as a man's world and as a white world? Well, one of the things I want this book to make a case for is that there has been change because there's a lot of conversation and discourse now about how everything is terrible and always has been terrible. And there's some people in the history profession who are talking about how little has changed even since the Civil War. And I find that dangerous in a couple of ways. One is, first of all, it has changed. And I wanted to remind people of this landscape that you said was unrecognizable. Just the kind of intricacies, the textures of daily life had so many unthinkable aspects as, as I grew into that world. Unthinkable from our point of view now. And I want young people to understand how much has changed. But I also think it's dangerous because if we don't think anything has ever changed, we get discouraged. And why bother? Why, why bother to struggle? Why bother to try to make change still happen if it's been shown to be impossible? So I would like people not to give up. And I think part of not giving up on all the changes we still have to make is to believe that, that this is possible and that things have improved, um, though that there's still an awful long way to go. You asked about a pie chart. I don't think I could give a percentage. And I, I also think we see many ways in which we're reversing, which is even more frightening. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, which was an absolute centerpiece of the civil rights movement. We're just seeing again and again the, the effort to push back many of the elements of progress that we have made in the, in the years since I was a child. You know, it's funny. Uh, the, the older I get, and I'm always annoyed when I say things like that, because then it just makes me feel older. I'm, I'm much more aware of the kind of odd fluidity of time and memory. You know, so I talked to my, my, my sons today about you know, Vietnam today is substantially further away than World War II was when I was kind of coming of age in the 70s. And World War II felt like ancient by then right by the 70s i couldn't it, i couldn't even fathom a world where that was the war that was being fought and yet you know it's basically the gulf war to today right for me growing up in the 70s world war ii was the exact same distance as the first gulf war or the clinton presidency was 
And I think about, you know, you, when I was reading your book, you grew up at a time when maybe not your grandparents, but so, I mean, certainly there were people, right, who were, would have been toward the end of their lives if they had lived long enough, who had been born just at the end of or right at the end of the Civil War. So there was a kind of, you know, generational actual memory of these things as opposed to just the history book thing. I mean, is, does, does that matter? I mean, in the sense of that you still had a, a kind of a culture of people, because you talk in the book a lot about the narrative had been, you know, the lost cause and romanticizing General Lee. And yeah, I think you have a, a point in the book where you talk about you didn't even realize in playing the war games, you know, the, the little sibling war games with your brothers that actually Lee had lost the war, right? Which I thought was a great, a, a great twist, which I hadn't thought about. Like, how does proximity change memory? I know that's kind of a big philosophical, but it's one you, you know, we all think about if, we, if we've studied history and you certainly having had a, a life as a practitioner, as a historian, have thought about. Well, I share that sense that you just described of how close things seem in time as you get older, as a decade is only a, you know, a fifth of your life or a, you know, a smaller portion of your life, you realize how, how fast a decade can go. And so part of what happened as I was, to me, as I was doing the research and writing this book is I realized how close in time a lot of these events were that my, first of all, World War, as for you, World War II seemed, though I'm much older than you, World War II seemed very distant, even though I knew my father had fought in it, but that was a long time ago before I was born. And then I realized that as I looked at my childhood, how close World War II was and the enormous impact it was still having in my family because of my father's participation and the participation really of all the men that I was related to. I also came to realize that uh, as I was working on the book, my grandmother was born, who figures uh, as a, a major presence in the book. She was born in 1894 and her father was born in 1861. So he grew up in the aftermath of the Civil War, and I'm sure communicated to her, he, he was a Southerner, he was born in North Carolina, lived most of his life in Tennessee, my grandmother grew up in Tennessee, the ideas and experiences that were very vivid for her as she heard them from her father and experienced them herself were just part and parcel of that post-Civil War era with all the racial conflict, the racial hierarchies, the uh, adulation of Civil War generals. My grandmother spoke about William Tecumseh Sherman with horror, as if he was a very nasty man who she had known personally when she was growing up. Of course, that wasn't true, but it, he was nevertheless very vivid in her mind. So the shortness of history is something that becomes very, I think, vivid when you get older. And it came that way for me as I was writing this book. And that made me think, in a different way, a personal way, about the past, to use Faulkner's much-repeated phrase, never being dead, was never dead in the lives of the people that I grew up with and, and the family members who, who shaped me. You know, picking up on that, I was really struck by, in particular, the descriptions of your mother and your relationship with your mother and how much you painted some of your mother's personal and psychological struggles. So you talk about maybe she had anorexia you described her, though, as a product of like social, cultural, and historical conditions. That was very striking to me because I kind of grew up in a, it's like we're in a literary genre now when it comes to talking about your family and personal relationships that like everything is trauma. Um, and I feel like this way of thinking about your intimate relationships and the people around you as still products of larger forces has kind of, I don't want to say been lost, but it's certainly gone out of style. Was that something that you had in mind as you were writing, or do you just write like that because you are a historian, so that's how you look at things? Well, I, I think partly it's I'm a historian and that's how I look at things, but I also felt my mother was indeed contained by these social structures and expectations that were stifling, and that these were realities for her, that whatever her psychological makeup was independent of them, she still was surrounded by these walls that prohibited her from taking a different direction in life. So perhaps it's my historian's view of things, but it also, I believe, is a, 
a, a valid way of thinking about what happened to her in her life. And I perhaps approach it that way because I see how lucky I have been to have grown up in a time when those things were changing and where paths for me opened that she never had the the luck or the experience of of confronting. And so that's what made a difference for me as opposed to her life, her very unhappy life, and my grandmother's very unhappy life. These were changes in, in women's roles that had a very profound personal impact on me. We'll be right back after this break. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. We're in this weirdly golden age of stand-up comedy because of instagram and reels and tiktok so it's very easy to get lost when you're wasting time watching all this and there was somebody a, a few weeks ago i came across and they were i think making fun of the human tendency to always place your contemporary morality in some past circumstance so people saying you know if i had been around in 1850 and i i would have fought against slavery or you know if i had been around in 1939 i would have stood up against fascism and the comic was saying, no, no, you wouldn't have, <laughs> you know, meaning, you know, there's always that, that post hoc tendency to feel like you would have been amongst what you have in retrospect defined as the operative morality. But of course, if everybody had thought it'd been the operative morality at the time that it wasn't, then it would have been different, right? It's because so many people believed in the lens that they, that they believed in. And I wonder how that you know, it, it is true you were at a point where things were opening up. It is also true that as an individual, kind of growing up into the 60s, this idea of not being satisfied with the world as it is and kind of demanding it to change, right? Whether that took the form of activism or, in your case, probably more of that than others, but a lot of people, it would appear simultaneously and independently all coalesced in this same kind of collective reality. And I wonder what you think about that now. I wonder, is there just a mystery of that? Like, why does everyone suddenly seemingly on their own simultaneously come to a similar conclusion and then work together to, to try to make it real? Well, Zach, what you've just been saying in, in that comment is so much the essence of, of how one studies history and how one thinks about, about history. I mean, the first part of what you were saying, the stand-up comic part about people think they would be different and they would be heroes in a different time. That's the essence of, of the scholarly inquiry of my life, which is how do people do, do, in societies that we see now as, as doing terrible things, how do they get up in the morning and live with themselves? And not so much how do they revolt? How do they not revolt? How do you live with slavery? How do you get up in the morning and see the cruelty going on all around you and just live a life and think you're a moral person? So that's been one kind of emphasis of, of my scholarly work. So the, the second part of your question, why did everyone come together and, and say at the end of the 1950s and into the 60s that the horrors of, of racial subordination in the United States needed to be challenged and the cruelties of the Vietnam War needed to be challenged? I believe that, and in, in the book I talk about this a lot, that the 
the trust that my generation was asked to have in our elders and in the status quo was undermined significantly by changes in technology, by changes in, in law, the Supreme Court cases, so that we began to see we had been told things that weren't true. And Sputnik plays a role in my book because I was nine and 10 years old in 1957. And I was so terrified by this Russian satellite when I'd been told all my life that we were superior and we were technologically superior and morally superior and we were, you know, in charge of the world. And suddenly here's this Russian satellite. We haven't been able to put one up and I'm terrified it's going to drop bombs on me. Quite literally, I slept on my back looking up because I thought it was going to come on one of its uh, um, circuits. It was going to drop a bomb on me. And it was a betrayal. It was treated actually in the country more widely as a huge crisis. And Congress was saying, how did we not get there first? And why didn't we put Sputnik up there? But for me, and I found as I've inquired, done research, pulled my college class, which has a Google uh, Docs, a uh, Google group. What did you think of Sputnik? For many people my age, it was a turning point in our understanding of how the world worked and whether we could trust our elders or whether we were being told things that were not true. And so we began to question the whole racial arrangement, as I, as I referred to earlier. We began to see that American democracy, American justice had huge flaws. And as we recognized that, it wasn't just that we needed to change them. We also thought, why were we misled? And so I think that sense of eroding trust was an important part of, of the 60s. And then I'd add something else to this, the sexual revolution, which divided us from her, her parents as they, in many, many cases, felt that this kind of sexual freedom was immoral and dangerous and should not be permitted. And so we began to move away from them in our beliefs about, about that very personal part of the world around us. You know, Emma and I actually had a conversation when we talked about Sputnik. What, part of the point of that conversation, and, and back to Emma's question earlier about sort of the then and now and change and the mystery of, of, of how change happens. And part of the point of the Progress Network, for those who are listening, hadn't have listened before, probably know, but bears repeating is this idea of like ideas do create change. It's just kind of mysterious how and when and in what way, you know, that I use the pebbles in the pond uh, metaphor a lot. Like, you know, the ripples are going somewhere. You just don't know who it's going to affect yeah. and when it's going to affect them. And there's elements of this. I mean, I'd add the fact that so many more people were moving into higher education gave us a community where, I mean, that's sort of where a lot of this change and revolution of the 60s emerged. And we, there we all were together and we wouldn't have been together in the same way when there weren't so many people going to college. So they're just different sets of, of factors that, that came together in a way led to the change that we've been talking about. It's so interesting to hear you frame that as like, you know, higher education opening up and forming a community, because I feel like nowadays higher education on the one hand is like more accessible than ever, right? Like more and more people are going to and have gone to college. Um, and on the other hand, it feels like even more of a divide than ever, like the education stratification, especially when it comes to politics seems to be so stark and you know the cost of college is such a prominent conversation i mean do you want to offer any general thoughts on on how you see the higher education landscape today the higher education landscape well i worry a lot about the attacks on universities i think they are targeted they are a, a kind of movement to try to discredit what is seen as a liberal part of society they're coming from from the right in many cases, there's lots that higher education needs to change. I think, you know, costs and, and openness and accessibility are all issues that universities have been working on and need to continue to work on. But I would just underscore that American universities are a wonder. They are admired around the world in a way few other parts of American society positively. They have been magnets for People all over the world, they are sources of innovation and, and important technical developments that have come out of the research in universities. And they also have transformed so many student lives. 
So I worry that we no longer see higher education as a public good, as something that's good for all of society. We, we increasingly focus on how it's good for this single individual who therefore has to pay for the whole thing. I mean, our social support for higher education in public higher education in the States has declined significantly since the time of the uh, financial crisis in 2008. And therefore, these debts that students are facing are no small part due to the transfer of responsibility to the students themselves away from some sense that this is a, a wider social good. I also worry that we need to understand that education is about more than just your getting a job or your first job. Now, I, mean, I just read a piece that you wrote where you talk about the importance of technical education, and I completely agree with that. We need more people who are, are able to do those very important, play those very important roles in society. But I think we also need to recognize that education is something that is about building citizens. It's about expanding people's horizons. It's about making people part of a, of a larger polity and community through the kinds of inquiries that, that will last them a lifetime beyond any single kind of job they, they may get. And I would just note that for all the criticism of higher education, most of the people criticizing it are sending their children to college. And yeah. I worry a lot that we're going to have a sense of, okay, a certain element in society goes to college, but the rest of society, just let them go to technical school. And that, that we're going to have a kind of class divide around how education is seen to play a role in people's lives. And, and that would be terrible. So as we criticize college, let's think about the large role it plays beyond simply job training, in addition to what it does in job training. I'm not saying that's not important, but college is about more than training. It's about something we call education, which is broader. So those are some of my reflections on the kinds of critiques and demeaning of higher education, which I, I mean, as you would expect, find quite dangerous. But I believe that it's not just about the world in which I have lived as an adult, but rather the ability to witness the kind of impact it's had on so many lives. I will say it, it was really interesting to me reading your book, how jealous I felt of your experience at Bryn Mawr, like not the curfew stuff and, and that kind of thing, not that part, but the quality of education it seemed like you received and the attention that you received from the instruction instructors there was just miles away from what I got. And I went to NYU, which is not the best school in the country, but a totally fine one. And I think that some of my feelings about college do come from a bit of a disillusionment about what the actual experience is like across different colleges in the U.S. One of the things that I have witnessed in my time at Harvard, I came in 2001, is a real transformation in the place of undergraduate education in life of the university, but also in the minds of the faculty. The faculty is met, most of them now, I would say, are just devoted to teaching. They really love the kinds of interaction with the undergraduates. They're fascinated by all the approaches to teaching that are now talked about in a very overt way, what technology can do. I think that the pandemic in a way accelerated this because when people had to do it online, then they thought, oh, I could bring in a guest or I could bring, you know, go to the Louvre for doing my history of art class because it's visual. I mean, it's on video. And so teaching in and student faculty relationships around intellectual matters, I think have changed significantly. There are many more small classes. You could probably get through Harvard sitting in the back row of a bunch of lectures if you really just wanted to be kind of a vegetable. But the opportunity is there to have a lot of interaction with faculty, a lot of attention. So I think there's an awareness that there has been the kind of dissatisfaction you describe about what higher education uh, represented in terms of teaching. And I, I think it's changed significantly. Yeah, it's funny. My experience going to Columbia as an undergraduate, I mean, I, I was a teacher at Harvard, but I was never an undergraduate at Harvard. And, you know, the core curriculum was a big deal of Columbia and still is that you all students spent a couple of years reading the same curriculum, the great books, and even though the the actual books read has changed and continues to change, 
But when I was an undergraduate there, it was almost entirely taught by tenured faculty, some assistant faculty who really wanted to, like they thought that that was sort of part of their, their mandate, right? Their, their, their profession. And until about 10 years ago, there was about a 20 year period where it was only taught by TAs, like the way I taught at Harvard. So graduate students, because it was really hard to get faculty to commit to it, hard to get tenured faculty, hard to get assistants. So I think there's, you know, these things kind of go in waves and uh, I'm a little hardened. You know, Michael Crow is a member of the Progress Network, is the president of ASU. And, you know, he's also been really at the forefront of, you know, this is a, this is an educational institution and has a public role. It's kind of apropos of the things you've just said. I think faculty recognize that they have the opportunity for enormous influence through teaching and that their scholarly articles may influence their field, but they're sending young people out in the world. And this is just a marvelous way to, to spread the knowledge and, and the things they really care about. So I think that's a, a factor in it as well. You know, I was, I was thinking of you know, the way you're so where you end your book, which is the election of 1968, and you cast a vote for Dick Gregory. Now, like, to be fair, for people who don't know, you've had a very successful, established career. I mean, voting for Dick Gregory was an odd thing to do, even for somebody who was politically activated in 1968. Like, you didn't vote for Humphrey. <laughs> you didn't, you know, that was, that was unusual even at its time, even as everyone else was coalescing. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, when you thought about your future at that moment in time, did you envision yourself as an act going into politics more as an activist as opposed to channeling those passions into being an historian, being an act, being a pub, having a public intellectual role? Would you, would you have been surprised would the would the 1968 you who voted for Dick Gregory be surprised at your subsequent life? Well, just on the Dick Gregory point. The Ivy League newspapers, as I cite in the book, overwhelmingly recommended and endorsed either Dick Gregory or Eldridge Cleaver. So Bryn Mawr is not an Ivy League school, but in the student generation, there was a real disillusion with Humphrey. So it wasn't as extreme a position to take as one might imagine just thinking about it in the abstract. Although in Clark County, you were one of two, you said, yes, right? Yes, in my hometown. That, yes, yeah, <laughs> one of two. So could I have envisioned where I was going? No. And that's one of the things I tell undergraduates is that if someone had asked me, or if I had said at that point, I want to be president of Harvard, it would have been laughable. I wouldn't, I wasn't even allowed in the undergraduate library until I wouldn't have been until my junior year. Just the roles for women were so limited. But as I grew older, they just kept, things kept opening up for me in ways that I never would have anticipated. I write in the book about how I was very uncomfortable with a violent turn in the student movement. And I think that is bespeaks a sense of, uh, that I, I was, became very well aware of, which was, I didn't think I was going to be on the barricades for my life. I thought I needed to find a way to enact my values in a manner that was more consistent with my contemplative temperament. And so I did leave and work in an institution. I worked for HUD for two years on, on programs to improve life in cities. There have been all these riots in cities in preceding years. This was a matter of concern to everybody. And so I went and thought, can government do something? But I quickly learned that I wanted to be back in the academy. I wanted to be thinking and studying and writing. And so I went back and thought, all right, I'll get my PhD and then I'll see where that leads. But it was always one step at a time because you couldn't, as a woman at that time, imagine the kinds of paths that actually happily opened. As we wrap up, I was really curious what the experience for you was like writing a memoir, since you have been a scholar and a historian, and the memoir obviously is very personal. I'm curious what the process was like. I wrote a lot of it during the pandemic, and I think that sense of isolation. I mean, I had my husband in the house, but other than that, there was no distraction to go have coffee with somebody or go to a meeting or go to a class. They were on Zoom. And so I got into this kind of bubble around, around the memoir that I believe sent me deep, more deeply into myself. I also wanted, when I was contemplating the book, I really wanted to find an editor to work with who would push me towards the memoir form because I knew it was different from anything I'd written before. 
And so his reactions of, it needs to be more personal. You've got to include the boyfriends. He, and sometimes he would say something like, it needs to be more personal. And I'd say, how, what am I not saying here that I should be saying? And so that was really helpful to have an interlocutor to kind of hold up to me what a, what a memoir is and push me towards revealing things that, I mean, it's not that I was keeping them secret. I just didn't, I didn't know what needed to be done. So, so that, that was really helpful. You know, that leads me to the question of like the role of the historian in society, uh, leads me in that. I was also thinking one thing that struck, struck me in my brief moment of being an academic historian is how much of the inner lives of so many people are lost. I mean, it, it's not if they've left a lot of letters, uh, presuming those letters are personal, which very much depends on the person, right? But I do wonder, you know, more than I wondered years ago about like the role of history in a society that seems increasingly ahistorical. Like there's always people going to read history and they love history. And there may be people who study history in university as something that's part of their passion. But the idea of like a collective narrative, the idea of a shared past seems ever more distant from our fractious present, which doesn't make me less passionate about the potential role of history, but it does make me question what the actual role of it is, particularly in an American society today. History is a way to travel outside yourself and see how people in different circumstances and different eras have confronted dilemmas that are like and unlike your own. In this book, in the memoir, one of the themes that I, I hope would be illustrated is the one of change and that change has happened in my lifetime and change can happen again. But we do have to recognize the dimensions of where we've been and where we've come and therefore understand what we might expect about where we're going. Another book I wrote about death in the American Civil War chronicles how a people faced a crisis that seems inconceivable in its impact on human life, but it's about a dilemma that we all face, which is mortality. And how have people confronted that in different times? And how does that inform our own sense of the finite nature of our lives and what loss means and how something like the pandemic takes us back to mm. an experience not unlike that of many 19th century Americans? So mm. I see history as a way of expanding understanding of where we are now and incorporating people whose lives are over uh, into the voices that can inform us about where we want to go. Well, thank you for that, Drew. It's a lovely book. It's a lovely memoir. <laughs> I encourage people to read it, as well as your other books that are more on the history of the 19th century, which is something that I think, again, it's We've, we've had a few conversations with people about and is a constant source of meaningful and necessary reference. And thank you for this conversation today. I know Em and I have been enriched by it. I'm sure others have as well. Well, thank you to both of you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. 
every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So, Emma, I just want to say that Drew Gilpin-Faust is the perfect podcast guest. Answers that are neither in sound bites nor soliloquies, thoughtful, both specific and general. Again, if it just had a purely like podcast interview level. Hit the nail on the head. Exactly. Now, on the substance, too, I mean, there's a lot more we could have talked about. We didn't even get into the way in which the title of her memoir came about. John Lewis reference, right? John Lewis reference. She later got to know John Lewis, longtime civil rights activist and then congressman. And she talks about him getting, a, I think, an honorary degree at Harvard when she was president and talked about the role of the historian to, to create necessary trouble, right? That, that, that there's a degree of, like, that's what's important. Not complacency, not not sort of telling people what they want to hear, but telling people perhaps more what they need to hear. And I just, you know, I think that's a it's a it's a great title, but it's also bestowed as a title in a perfect way. Yeah, I mean, we should say, I guess, in today's discourse that she did ask permission from him to use the title. So it's just so everyone knows it was kosher. It's it's very. I feel like we maybe didn't hit on this in the podcast so much, like you said, but it is very clear that her personal life as in relationship with her civil rights activism and her feminism was very much so difficult like for her mom and her dad like like she just did not fit in with the prevailing expectations at that time and it wasn't like she had a family that was like you go girl she had a family that was like what are you doing (laughs) and she separated them pretty early you know when she was went off to boarding school i forget how old she was but what 12 13 something like that There's something, I feel like more historians should write memoirs. And granted, that's kind of counter to a lot of the academic training of an historian. And you, Emma, were pointing out that you felt that that individual narrative is far more prevalent today, rather than the idea that we're the product of larger forces that are shaping all of us. And like anything else, they're both true. It's like the nature-nurture question. And one of the advantages of an historian, at best, is bringing to bear the nature part, the nature being the larger society, the forces, the history that came before, and juxtaposing that with the nurture. And in many ways, that's what Drew Copeland Faust is able to do. But it's an it's an example of what could be done more. Anyway, it was a great conversation. And now it is time to turn to the news du jour, the stories that we've missed, the the ideas and the things going on in the world that are constructive but buried under an avalanche of negative stories. Let's start today with paid sick leave in the United States. People may or may not know that there is no federal law that says that companies must provide their workers with paid sick leave in the United States. There was one that was briefly passed during the pandemic, but it expired. So this is something that's been up to the states. And Axios just put out a report from the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute. So do with that information what you will. They want people to have paid sick leave. That's what they're going after here. Uh, They're using numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. 
And they have good news, what I would call good news, to report that the share of all workers in the U.S. with paid sick leave has gone up since 2010. So 78% of all workers in the private sector can now take a paid sick day compared to 63% in 2010. And that's because a bunch of states have passed their own individual laws. So over the past 10 years, 15 states as well as Washington, D.C. Zachary, do you want to guess? Which state was the first to pass? I don't know. I mean, my my record for correct guesses in this is probably <laughs> about as good as the record of, you know, heads or tails. Uh, the the guess is for the first state to pass paid sick leave, right? That's your... Yes. That's my It was in 2011. Question. Yes. 2011 for paid mm-hmm. sick leave. Uh, I mean, California is always a tempting one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just go with California. It wasn't, but California was a good guess because they have passed paid sick leave, although I don't know which okay. year. The first was Connecticut. It was, was also a C state, so we're going to give uh, you points C for state, that. so I get, I get like maybe not half credit, but something. For, I mean, there's 35% Colorado, at least. <laughs> right? I mean, how many C states are there? There's Colorado, Connecticut, California. California. Kentucky. Sure kidding. Deeply, That's a joke. K- Kentucky. That's a joke. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a joke. That's, if you're in a blue state, Kentucky is a C state. Um, no. All right. So, so of, of these 15 states that have passed paid sick leave, most of them are blue, except for not all of them, most of them. But Missouri coming in with a paid sick time initiative on the ballot in 2024, which is interesting. So 63% to 78% is decent. There's a lot of disparity hidden in that number. So uh, the report breaks it down from the bottom 10% to the top 10%. So the bottom 10% in terms of their income in 2010, 20% of them used to have paid sick leave. Now it's 39%. Huge change. It's just that we started so low that it's still not particularly impressive. Bottom 25% went from 33% coverage to 56%. And then if you want to know what things look like more on the, the upper tier as far as income goes, the top 25% went from 84% coverage in 2010 to 94%. And the top 10% went from 87% to 96%. So everybody is getting more access to paid sick leave. Um, of course, there's much further to go in the, the bottom 10% and the bottom 25%. But at some point for this to keep going, red states are going to have to go after this as well because it doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for this to pass federally. But still, I mean... The fact that we don't want to send people to work when they're sick, I'm going to call that progress. Yeah, I mean, clearly, as we learned during the pandemic, at least I think as a lot of people learned, and I was one, that states have just immense control, authority, ability to shape the healthcare outcomes of people within state borders. And I, I don't think we were as, you know, as sensitive to that as we were sort of now after the pandemic we certainly always were aware of that with education right that the federal role particularly in k-12 education is very limited and has always been and in the absence of federal mandates about health care you're left with a lot of variety state by state by state just as you are with state tax rates so you know it's interesting to see how this plays out given that we are not going the direction some of our more affluent country peers have gone which is Things like paid sick leave, paid maternal leave, paid paternal leave are all givens as opposed to a patchwork of you get it somewhere, you don't get it other places. Yeah. And I thought that we had made some progress over the pandemic as well as like as thinking, do we really want sick people at work giving us all of their germs anyway? Uh, But I'm not sure how much that's stuck. When I was doing this research, I was thinking about last Christmas when I had norovirus. I'm almost positive it came from a restaurant. And I was just thinking, maybe this poor guy or woman like had to go to work because they didn't have paid sick leave. And now what's happened? They had norovirus. Ten other people just in my immediate radius had norovirus. Please, let's pass this on a federal level um, because we can do better than this. As you said, we can, we can do more in line with our peers. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so what do we got next? Paid sick leave now. We have paid sick leave, and now we're going to talk about teens and smoking. Actually, not just smoking, teens and and tobacco altogether. Uh, We had a super viral TikTok once 
on TPN about Gen Z and how they don't drink or smoke or party nearly as much um, as previous generations. And a lot of people responded to that TikTok and they said, but what about vaping? I see everybody vaping. The CDC and the FDA just released the first week of November, their 2023 National Youth Tobacco Survey. A new report by the CDC shows fewer kids are using tobacco and vaping for the second year in a row. E-cigarette use is down nationwide, at least among high school age teenagers. A study by the CDC reveals that in 2022 to 2023, use declined about four points, from 14 to 10 percent. And this decline, they say, was primarily attributable to reduced e-cigarette use, 14.1 percent to 10 percent. So they tell us that this is 580,000 fewer high school students who reported current use of e-cigarettes. So short term, that's down. Uh, if you look at slightly longer term, vaping your e-cigarettes went up in the past maybe five or so years and then started to decline already one or two years ago. But even considering vaping, I'm not sure that everybody knows this, that the percent of teenagers in the United States that smoke or use tobacco is massively down from where it was. 50 years ago. So even if we see short-term increases or decreases, we're talking, we're talking about a completely different playing field than we were once in. So that's high school. and Middle school, it's slightly different. There's a small increase from 2022 to 2023 with tobacco 4.5% to 6.6%, but still quite small. One small little fun fact is that the survey this year for the first time included flavors, including like iced stuff, like iced cherry and so the federal yeah. government is keeping up with the times, guys, in case you were worried about that. Last one for today. I wanted to mention this because I hadn't seen it covered anywhere else. The New York Times had a really interesting story about divorce in the Philippines, where it is illegal, if you didn't know. We want to be free. That's the message of an increasing number of women in the Philippines who are trapped in marriages they cannot escape. That's because divorce is illegal in the Catholic-majority country. The only other place in the world where this is the case is the Vatican. Calls by activists are growing louder for divorce to be legalized, but they face a powerful opposition. It has a really strange and long history of being legal and illegal in the Philippines with American occupation, Japanese occupation. The New York Times goes further into detail about that, but Generally, it's been illegal in the country since 1950, except for Muslim citizens, which are 5% of the population. They are allowed to divorce. The rest of the population cannot. A little quirks in the Philippines. But in recent months, the New York Times says the Senate committee there approved a bill on divorce for the first time in more than 30 years. The bill is now awaiting, they say, a second reading in the Senate, which lawmakers say could happen next year. So it's not a sure thing, but it seems like there is a possibility that it could pass, which would be a massive change. Of course, divorce is very important <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. If you're in an abusive marriage, the fact that even if you just hate each other's guts in the Philippines, you still need to get your spouse's signature to buy a house or do anything if you have kids. So um, it's messy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. I had assumed most countries, uh, divorce between two heterosexual adults is legal. Clearly, an incorrect assumption. Uh, it's widely seen that while many people worry about divorce rates as eroding families and leading to all sorts of negative social consequences, right? That's the kind of conservative argument, and I think almost every country, small c conservative. I'm not. This is not making that as a. A generalizable about political conservatives. Uh, the the lack of optionality is clearly not served particularly women very well in any society, which is different than saying, you know, is it a good thing to stay together? Is it better to have a family unit for raising children? Does that lead to better long-term outcomes? Like those are legitimate questions to ask in terms of should divorce be something one does easily or in a in a hard way, but that's all totally different than should the state make it harder, right? Should one individually be more mindful of the consequences, particularly with young kids? Sure, I think that's probably a discussion worth having, but that's totally different than the coercive powers of the state telling you you can or can't do something. Yeah, and the Times uh, 
quotes a, a judge's ruling from from some woman who wanted to get her marriage annulled and spent a lot of money trying to do it. And they called marriage an insoluble institution by the state, something like that, which, yeah, despite your point about the conversation of, is there too much divorce happening? Should parents stay together for the sake of the kids? In these more extreme circumstances, as I mentioned, especially in the case of domestic violence, viewing marriage as something that is forever in, in the eyes of the government something very different from the discussion that we're having here. And I also didn't realize that there were countries in the midst of having that discussion. So, um, yeah. There you go. There you go. So we leave that to people to form their own opinions about. I wonder, too, what requirements that you will need in the Philippines to get a divorce, if it's the bill is just how it would be in the U.S., you know, where you can just kind of say, I'd like one. (laughs) Or if it's going to be more strict, I imagine it would be more strict. I mean, look, it is clearly the case, and we talk about this in terms of progress or regress, that authoritarian governments that rely on kind of traditional values are more likely to be against the expansion of LBGTQ rights, of divorce, of abortion, of contraception, of all sorts of things that characterize the mid-20th century particularly, you know, the opening up of what had been more traditionally closed frameworks, as well as drug use, right, we talked about just now, and that there is a global tug of war going on where there are a bunch of countries that certainly utilize sort of social conservatism, traditional values, no divorce, no premarital sex, no abortion, no contraception, uh, you know, women's place being home, family, kids. So you do have this in Russia, you have this in Uganda, you, you know, it's, 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 there, there are places where these things clearly are being pushed back from whatever advances were made. But we've tried to highlight a lot, and you've highlighted a lot in the newsletter and we've discussed on the show, there are a lot of times where these things don't line up and places that are otherwise politically dysfunctional or maybe more uh, authoritarian-minded can also be somewhat socially liberal. But it is something that I think look out for where you do have a tendency of more authoritarian governments to want to reinforce more rigid social mores and rules rather than the kind of fluidity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that has characterized a lot of contemporary 20th and 21st century culture. Right. And let's not forget there's probably a happy medium between those two things. Like, it, it, uh, I was I reminded myself to add in the Philippines, which is interesting, that they legalized contraception ten years ago. So they're kind of on a particular path, it seems. Right. Maybe not to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but a little bit more open. Yeah. Well, and as we just saw from our you know conversation with Drew Faust, um, the loosening of these rules has been absolutely essential to. I guess, liberating women or creating a more uh, gender-neutral societies or where the opportunities for women are at least somewhat equivalent to men, which includes things not just like paid sick leave, but, but paid childcare and childcare leave. So, not linear, not straight, not simple, not without a step back with the two steps forward. But if you're to look at the world today versus the world 100 years ago, uh, and again, in light of our conversation with uh, Drew Gilpin-Faust, you you'd have to say that there has been more positive movement everywhere or almost everywhere in the world than not. 100%. So that's it for today. That's it. Let us know what you think. As usual, let us know your thoughts, comments, criticisms, suggestions, ideas for something else. I know these conversations, we're just going to keep reminding ourselves, uh, are occurring against a backdrop of uh, war and difficulty that is occupying a lot of mind share for all of us. And we don't have these conversations indifferent to those realities, but we also do think that we're all able to hold multiple realities simultaneously and that it's important to remind ourselves of other things that are going on in the world. And this is our attempt to do just that. So, thank you again. Thank you. We're going to be taking off next week for Thanksgiving, but we'll have a new episode for you in two weeks. So, see you then.
What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Plugglomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.